I'm Taylor, and this is the Hopeless Sportsmantic Podcast. Welcome in, everybody, to this episode of the Hopeless Sportsmantic Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor, and today we're going to cover probably... One of the most depressing weekends in Georgia sports history. Every single team except the Falcons on Sunday of all teams to win their games this weekend. It was the Falcons, but besides that, Atlanta and Georgia teams went 0 for 3 this weekend in sports. So not a very good look. Luckily, none of them, in my opinion, choked away the game there's an art there's the argument for the Braves but we'll get into why I don't think that that counts as a choke despite them losing a 3-1 lead to the Dodgers in the NLCS on Saturday and Sunday respectively this weekend so to get started we're going to go over kind of just a broad coverage of the whole NLCS series Braves came out took the first two games lost game three and an absolute landslide just never recovered from the first inning where Kyle Wright was just rocked. And I think it was 11 runs in the first inning overall, but came back in game four and Bryce Wilson pitched the game of his life out dueled Clayton Kershaw. Who's been, although ineffective in the playoffs has been in effect, has been effective against the Braves recently and he just pitched a heck of a game and allowed the Braves to come away with a win despite not getting a lot of offensive output overall then came games five six and seven which the Dodgers won three straight took the series win despite having Ian Anderson and Max Freed on the mound for games six and seven. A lot of the memes coming around already are the screenshot of the scoreboard with it being three to one and then the 28 to three and the 20 to seven, the grouping it in there with the other, with the uh, chokes and the past from Georgia sports teams. But I think that this is, this is different. Uh, this this I never got the vibe at any point in this seven game series that we had them on the ropes. Yes, we were up three to one, but this was still a Dodgers team with a ridiculous lineup hitters on for, on both sides of the plate, left handed power and right handed power, some phenomenal young pitchers, some veteran pitchers and a bullpen nearly as good as the Braves. I mean, this team really has no weaknesses, young talent, old talent. In every, in every facet, this team, there's a reason why they were the favorite coming into this series. And on top of that, the biggest, the biggest key as far as that is, in my opinion, the first two games would allow the Braves to get the two of their first three wins were completely were managerial mistakes by Dave Roberts with two of those games coming from 
him bringing in a lefty to face Ozzy Albies, who everybody knows he destroys left-handed pitching and was the was a game-deciding run in Game 2 and provided multiple runs in Game 1 as well. And it was just overmanaging, brought in the wrong guys, brought in a guy that with a sinker and was uh, brought in Blake Trinan, who's a sinker cutter guy. And Austin Riley is shown an ability to hit those pitches pretty consistently. And he hit the go ahead home run in the ninth inning. And then when Dave Roberts kind of stopped over managing and went with his gut, he made, which was a turned out to be a great decision to keep Julio Urias in for three innings in game seven to finish out the series clinching game. That was phenomenal. He brought in Kinley Jansen there and the Braves just tried, tried too hard to be the hero in the ninth inning of that game, allowed him to get two pitches and two outs and a two with a two run game. Just tried to do too much used his pitch to contact ability to work that inning saw that Dustin in game seven saw that Dustin may just didn't really have his, his best stuff and pulled him fairly early and brought in Tony Gonsolin, whose only real mistake was the solo home run to Dansby Swanson. And besides that, he pitched, pretty well in the short amount that he was asked to do had his trust in trying to come out and pitch three days straight. He did well with that. And then you see some of the decisions that Brian Snicker made. Um, his were very good as well. I don't think there were any decisions that I looked at and were was immediately questioning maybe a little bit with pulling Shane Green, but that turned out to work not hor it didn't go horribly wrong. I think some of that was you gotta go with the hot hand. I completely see where he was coming from with the fact that AJ Mentor pitched the best three innings of his entire career the last time he was there, and maybe he just had something going. As far as and that's those are the mistakes that the manager can control. The manager can decide who's starting, which bullpen guys are coming in, who you bring in off the bench, and you can argue that starting Marcakis with how much he struggled was an argument. But then again, the whole lineup struggled, and he we lost Adam Duvall in Game One, so there wasn't really a consistently solid replacement in the outfield with him being gone with the oblique injury. I think that the re the, to sum up the reason why I consider this to not be a choke is I think the Dodgers were just a better team coming in and they played down to the Braves with the lack of a starting rotation and a very right hand with how right-handed heavy the, Braves lineup is with having bringing in Darno as the catcher this year. And on top of that, Darno cooled off big time, which I wasn't surprised by. I mean, with how he played in the divisional series 
that just isn't sustainable. It's your numbers are going to return to the norm. They're going to come back around. They're going to equal out. So you couldn't expect much from him. The biggest guy that really is offensively is the reason why the Braves, I think, didn't finish the series out was Ronald Acuna. Ozzy Albies came through when they needed him. Dansby came through when they needed him. Even Christian Pache had some great hits. Freddie did pretty well. He had, even when Freddie didn't get hits, they were robbed home runs. They were line outs into the shift. They just, the analytics side of things really hurt Freddie despite his consistent hard contact. But Ronald was, Ronald was just pressing the last three games of that series. Every single pitch I think he swung at, he was underneath it, consistently hitting pop-ups, consistently just underneath the ball. And that tells me that he's pressing because he's trying to take over the game in one swing, trying to hit home runs instead of trying to just get on base as a leadoff hitter with the power that Ronald has. If he just comes in and tries to have a normal approach at the plate, he's got enough natural power that the ball's going to carry out of the park to right center if he just tries to hit the ball the other way. But he was trying way too hard to be that guy. I don't know if it was just an experience. I don't know if it was frustration with how much he was getting pitched inside throughout the entire postseason. I don't know if it was what he saw from Juan Soto in last year's postseason and how he was a real difference maker for the Nationals in their World Series run. But he just wasn't himself he was trying to do too much and it showed on the stat sheet and it showed in the fact that the Braves weren't able to finish out the series despite having a 3-1 lead now we look ahead to next season I assume that we're probably going to have a full 162 game schedule probably going to be fans in the stands at that point maybe not a sellout crowd but there's probably going to be fans We'll have Soroka back. The timetable, I'm. this is completely a guess um, or an estimation, would probably be around the All-Star break is when Soroka is going to be back. The Achilles injuries used to be a full 18-month recovery process. That's now kind of been streamlined to more of around a nine-month timetable. So there is some questions in the air of how effective it will, he'll be. I mean, he's a pitcher, so it's, I guess, it is it is an Achilles, which is a tough injury to deal with, but I honestly would rather him have that than it be in a shoulder or an elbow issue, something in the, in the arm, which as a pitcher is the most vital aspect of it. On top of that, um, Soroka is, Mike isn't a power pitcher per se, he doesn't, use overpowering stuff to get guys out. He's pitched to contact, keep the ball on the ground, make guys put it in play for soft contact. That's really his game. So I don't think there's a as high of a chance of him re-aggravating the injury. Even with Mike coming back and Ian Anderson coming on as a star in the making, I still want to see the Braves go and get an ace. I don't know if it, should be Trevor Bauer, but there aren't that many other great choices besides that. I would, 
I say that, and I know I would be ecstatic on this show if they were able to sign Trevor Bauer at some point. Another guy I wouldn't mind would be Marcus Stroman. I think he would play along well with the clubhouse mentality that Freddie and Ronald and Ozzy have been able to establish and just the culture of this team. I think they would make this team really fun to watch. And he's a ground ball pitcher, a pitch-to-contact guy, which I think is able to counteract the launch angle approach that hitters nowadays have throughout all of baseball. So that'll be that's the that's number one priority, I guess one A, and then one B is obviously you you got to re-sign Marcelo Zuna. Although it worked out with Donaldson. And I have full trust in Alex Anthopoulos to make the right decision with how much this team has progressed along in the rebuild process. I still, th- I think this is this time with how he might even be a top five MVP candidate himself behind Freddie Freeman as the guy winning the MVP and how much protection he brought to Freddie in the lineup and just made us one of the top offenses in baseball. I think he's a guy that you have to bring back. And I think like I anticipate with Stroman and even possibly Bauer, I think he'll, he's fit really well into this culture, especially with the selfie celebration after hitting some home runs in the postseason, which really helped the team. I think to carry it to seven games against the team that I think is probably going to win the world series in pretty handed fashion but those are the those are the two priorities and then you run into questions of bringing back some relievers whether you bring back Melanson whether you bring back Shane Green we do have Darno and Will Smith on multi-year contracts so they'll be back for sure I am willing to sacrifice some of the I guess ridiculousness in the bullpen this past season to get another ace on staff or get a pitcher because you don't know, like you don't know if Soroka is going to be the same and Fulte I think has most likely pitched his thrown his last MLB pitch for the Braves at this point. So I'm willing to sacrifice the bullpen in order for us to upgrade the starting pitching, which I think is part of the reason why the Dodgers even had a chance to come back in the series because of having to throw a bullpen day in game five. And yes, you were able to rest Max Freed and Ian Anderson, but Freed pitched pretty well, ate up a good amount of innings. But I think after that bullpen day, after Ian Anderson only being able to pitch, I think, two or three innings, that really wore on the bullpen over time to where it paid dividends for the Dodgers with Chris Martin, especially missing over the middle of the plate in an eight-pitch at bat and allowing Cody Bellinger to hit the home run that essentially decided the series at this point. So I... People are going to say it's a disappointing season given the World Series or bust coming in, but this team played the, I think, the eventual World Series champions as far as you can go, even with losing 
your best pitcher to a season-ending injury early on. And I was surprised that the Braves were actually able to even continue on that path and win the division despite losing him and how much with how much the starting pitching struggled throughout the season. So this is about where I expected this is better than I expected the Braves to be. Obviously, we're coming back next year with Soroka coming back at the midpoint in the season. The extra cap space that this team has and the ability to go get big-time free agents this year, we're definitely going to have an all-out World Series or bust mentality coming into next season. But given the injury to Mike Soroka, I am disappointed in how the season ended. It was sad to see, but I am not distraught as like I was given the ending of the 28-2019 season. To move over to the second part of this disappointment weekend, we're going to talk about Georgia's lackadaisical performance against Alabama in Tuscaloosa on Saturday. Coming into this game, I was unable to do a preview episode just given how busy I was with schoolwork this week. Didn't really have the free time. So I'm going to do this kind of recap as part of this disappointment weekend episode. Coming into this game, I was very confident. I expected Georgia to be able to win this game because of how weak Alabama was defensively, especially last week, and how they gave up a ridiculous amount of rushing yards to Ole Miss. How there were so many, it was mental errors, blown assignments, stuff you shouldn't see from a Nick Saban team, and stuff that typically, if you if it's not fixed by week one or week two, it's not going to be fixed all season long. And I expected Georgia's top defense to be able to not shut down Alabama's offense. That wasn't going to happen, but to limit big plays and limit the offense to around probably 20 to 24 points. And given the final score of this game, that definitely wasn't the case. The biggest issue People are going to point the finger at Stetson Bennett, obviously, with the three interceptions, but I also point the finger at Todd Monken for putting Stetson Bennett in that situation in the first place. Because this the team, we're, th- this Georgia team, our identity is a pa- on offense is power running. We are going to run the ball down your throat. You know what's coming, and you still cannot stop it. That's what Georgia has built RBU on. That's what Georgia has done to be successful in the Kirby Smart era and even towards the tail end of the Mark Richt era in Athens. But Todd Monken has come in, and even with a former junior college transfer quarterback at the helm of this offense, given the loss of Jamie Newman to the NFL, we're still throwing the ball 35 to 40 times a game. And that's just not what Georgia does on offense. That's not our identity. Georgia should be running the ball a heck of a lot more than we throw it. And Stetson Bennett should at most be throwing the ball, I'd say 18 to 20 times. That's how we should be winning football games, given the depth we have 
at the running back position, given the physicality that we should be playing with at, on the offensive line and just the sheer ability to force our will in the trenches. That's what Georgia should be doing to win games. We are not a spread it out five wide, put the defense in the nickel and time package and make our receivers beat guys one-on-one. That's Alabama. That's Oregon. That's Ohio State. That's what those spread offense teams do to win games. If we try to beat them at that game, that's what they're seeing in practice every day, and that's not what the skill set of our players are meant to be, aside from a few anomalies like Jermaine Burton or Kenny McIntosh. We ran the ball at an effective rate, overall 4.8 yards a carry, Could have been more, I think, if we would have shown a bit more imagination in the running game. But we still decided to be a pass-first offense. I can understand it if the running game isn't there and then you're constantly in third and long situations where you have to pass. But I believe it was on a first down when Stetson threw his first interception. And I don't think it was third down scenarios when he threw the other two. And... That's just, it's it's not who we are. Even with having JT Daniel with a healthy knee or even Jamie Newman, that's not how I wanted this team to run the offense. I wanted them to use the power running first, and I wanted the play action pass to the, and the deep ball being in the back pocket as a way for George Pickens and Kiaris Jackson to be involved in the offense. But we abandoned our identity and it led to Alabama winning in pretty dominating fashion in the second half. We played their game, and they beat us in a way that we usually beat other teams by running away with the game in the second half. The turnovers put a good amount of pressure on the defense. I won't say that they put them in an unbearable situation because some of them were in plus territory, And a lot of the scoring drives that Bama had were off of scoring drives by Georgia where they started on the 25. I I knew that there were going to be a couple of big plays coming in. There's at least going to be one or two times where Devontae Smith or Jalen Waddell is able to get behind the defense and create a big play. But there were still just, there were just too many of those. Too much of just big play. The 90-yard touchdown to Jalen Waddell was the biggest one of all of them. Ran a twin set with the motion. It was great play design, but it still is something that the coaching staff at Georgia with Dan Lanning, with Kirby Smart, with all these guys, they should be prepared to see that. I guarantee there was at some point where Bama ran that earlier in the season, and they've seen that before. And it's not a surprise that Kirby admitted that they got outcoached in that game with how Bama was able to really establish their will on offense. There wasn't enough consistent pressure on Mac Jones, although when the pressure got there, it was effective. So if Georgia is able to figure something out for the second time around, because I'm assuming that Georgia's probably going to win the East. We're probably going to have to play Bama again in December. If that pass rush can get there, 
then we have a chance to beat them the second time around, just like how in 17, if we were, we were able to stop the run and limit carry on Johnson a lot more in 2017 in order to win that game the second time around against Auburn. But Stetson threw the ball 40 times. Zamir White had more carries than anyone else, and he still only carried the ball, I believe, 10 times. For 50, he had, had 10 carries for 57 yards as a leading rusher when early on we were really establishing our will. Had an easy, easy punch it in touchdown to answer after I believe Bama had the first score. So that was something that I looked at as a positive and was like, okay, we've established the run game. We're really going to be able to do assert our will on this defense. But Todd Monken decided it was a good idea for. Stetson to throw the ball 40 times and it led to three interceptions. Stetson just he's it's it was a bad game, but it's what it's who he is. He's shorter, so he's gonna have balls deflected. He doesn't have the biggest arm, so if he makes a bad read, he's gonna get punished for it. He's not gonna be able to get away with bad decision making with arm talent like some other quarterbacks are. Tua Tagovailoa being one of them in the past, but I wanted to see Kenny McIntosh involved more. I wanted to see the power running game first and foremost. I needed they needed there to be a lot more pressure on the quarterback, and they needed to limit big plays a lot more. Everything coming in that you expected Georgia to, to do well to have a game plan for to be able to do on offense and defense, they weren't able to do any of that. Bama was able to throw the ball at will just like they have against horrible defenses in the SEC, and they were able to keep Georgia from doing anything crazy offensively except for the big play to James Cook, which was just a good uh, matchup nightmare was the entire reason that play was able to be successful with James Cook being covered on the outside by Christian Harris, who is a linebacker. I just know that if we had focused more on the running game, ran it 60-40 probably instead of going 40 throws and 30 rushes, and and that includes runs by Stetson. So that's probably going to even add two or three more pass plays being called that direction compared to running plays being called. But if we would have established the running game, I think that would have taken a lot more pressure off of Stetson Bennett. That would have taken more pressure off of the defense because they wouldn't have to spend as much time on the field. And George's the time of possession would have been in George's favor instead of going the other way. And it wouldn't have just Bama wouldn't have, had more plays to throw more things at that defense to give the playmakers that Bama has more chances to make plays. It's time of possession has to be in George's favor in this game. And the rushing yards have to be in George's favor. And that wasn't the case either way. Bama outrushed Georgia by 147 to 137. And then Mac Jones, threw for over 400 yards whereas and four touchdowns, whereas Stetson Bennett threw three interceptions 
and I believe only I believe James Cook's touchdown was the only pass he threw for a touchdown in that game. So it's just no, he threw two. He threw one to Jermaine Burton. Forgot about that one, but it became we played into their hands with becoming a, a very pass heavy offense and Mac Jones straight up outplayed Stetson Bennett. A lot of the stats were either very near the same or in George's favor. And the only stats that were really that much of an advantage for Bama and they were by a wide margin were the passing stats were the receiving yards, the, interceptions the touchdowns i mean the passing the difference in the quarterback play really decided this game on the stat sheet so that's how i come to the conclusion that sticking to georgia's identity as a power running team i don't know if it would have won the game given that it was played at tuscaloosa but it definitely would have decreased the margin of victory and limited the big plays that bama was able to have on their offensive side of the ball. So all around a very disappointing game for Georgia. This was really just a barometer for what the teams are going to look like when they play each other for the SEC championship in December, especially with how Florida lost last week to Texas A&M. But you still want to, you as a Georgia fan, you want to see Georgia beat Bama. That's why we hired Kirby Smart and brought him in was to be the difference maker for for Georgia to be able to beat Alabama in the SEC. And his record has been very similar to Mark Rick's over the timeline. So you really start to worry at this point with it being three straight losses to Alabama if this is going to be the same old Georgia under Kirby Smart. Hopefully that's not the case. Hopefully we have a similar... SEC championship outcome to 2017 where they're able to make adjustments and beat a team the second time around. We might even have to beat them twice or have a third shot at them given that I think the Pac-12 is pretty much out of the picture with how they only have a seven-game schedule. So there is a very good chance that even with that, there could be two SEC teams with that and the fact that the Big 12 is pro- is out with how Texas was the only hope that they really had, and then they just lost to Oklahoma in the Red River rivalry. So it'll, we'll have to wait and see. I'll be interested to see if Stetson Bennett remains at the quarterback position as the starter or if Dewan Mathis or JT Daniel comes in to be the replacement. I'll end on this for this segment. Dwan Mathis or JT Daniels healthy will have to be the quarterback in order for Georgia to be able to beat Alabama in a head to head matchup. We now interrupt your regularly scheduled programming for today's episode of the Atlanta Falcons, the definition of insanity. I'm starting to feel like Hawkeye at the beginning of Endgame with what I saw on Sunday. Just don't don't do this to me, Falcons. Don't give me hope again. This was 
the best this team has looked in probably three years yesterday against the Minnesota Vikings in Minnesota. Matt played the best game he's played in a long time. Went 30 for 40 for 371 yards and four touchdowns. Julio had a 100-yard game and got his first touchdown of the season and added another touchdown. On top of that, finished with eight for 137 and two touchdowns overall. This was 100% the best the defense has looked. Had three takeaways, three interceptions of Kirk Cousins, who although he has had some turnover issues this season, it still is great to see, especially with the uh, first interception coming on the first play from scrimmage by Deion Jones. Really made a great play on the ball and showed his speed and used his superb coverage ability to make a play on the first play from scrimmage and got that interception, which really helped the Falcons get off to a fast start and they were finally able to not let their foot off the gas and were able to close this game out. The game is closer on the scoreboard than it was on the field. A lot of the points were scored in garbage time by Minnesota. Justin Jefferson had a big stat line, but he had a big touchdown reception in the last few minutes of the game when it was already out of reach. So it was a really good game, especially by Falcons terms as far as the defense goes. Even with Grady Jarrett having a very quiet day, only had a couple of tackles, but I think he was acting as a decoy a lot of the time because, or even taking up double teams because Alan Bailey had a heck of a game today or yesterday finished with three tackles with a sack and a lot of, he had and a lot of stuff that's not showing up on the, in the basic box score had a lot of QB pressures and made and the plays he was making were really timely plays that were able to help the Falcons to get momentum. AJ Terrell actually led the team with seven tackles at corner and had his first interception of his career, which was a great play he made on the ball. Wasn't a horrible read by Kirk Cousins, in my opinion. He just made a great diving play, actually caught the ball with his legs and was able to play the ball didn't touch the ground game and get the interception on that, which the Falcons were then able to capitalize and really break the game open. Big plays offensively, big plays defensively. That's a recipe for success, especially when the only quarter you lose on the scoreboard is the fourth quarter, and you only really lose that by garbage time touchdowns, and you only lose that by six points anyway with the Falcons winning the first quarter 10 to nothing, the second quarter 10 to nothing, and then the third quarter 10 to seven. That's a recipe to be a successful football team. This team just looked like, like they were just motivated. I think the firing of Dan Quinn and the mentality that Raheem Morris really carried into this week, the team was able to capitalize on that. And a lot of guys played with a chip on their shoulder yesterday and it was the reason why the Falcons were able to get their first win of the season. 
I'm not going to sit here and say that that's going to be a groundbreaking move quite yet because of the fact that the Vikings are one in five as well. Now, after losing to the Falcons yesterday, granted some of their losses have been nail biters against top level teams like Seattle, but at the end of the day, it's still a one in five team. I want to see more from this team. I want to see them beat higher level competition, which the issue with that for the Falcons is they're actually heading into the easiest part of their schedule. They play Detroit next week at home. Then they go into Carolina. Hopefully they can get revenge from last week's schlacking at home. Then they play Denver at home, and then they have a bye week. So those are the these next three games. Falcons have to go 3-0 for me to have any hope for having a comeback of a season. And then probably one of the biggest games of the year comes after that bye week following those three games where they go into New Orleans. I think it's a Thanksgiving Day game against the Saints. So it's a divisional opponent. They're going to have to beat the it's you got to beat the teams you can beat. It helps that the losses that got Dan Quinn fired were against teams that were top level competition that we didn't really know they were going to win in the first place aside from I mean Carolina you got to win in Dallas you got to win but Chicago I understand that loss. Seattle, I understand that loss. And Green Bay, I understand that loss, given the level of play that those teams have been at all season long so far. So what still needs to be improved upon after this week? There's not really much offensively. I would have liked to see them run the ball a little bit better, but Minnesota clearly, with how much they had guys in the box and how I guess, instinctive their linebackers were and anticipatory they were. They were really keying in on the run a lot, made that a big emphasis to stop the run, which opened up, I think, the play-action pass for the Falcons and allowed for Julio to have a big game, Russell Gage to have some timely catches on third down. Calvin Ridley had six catches for 61 yards on his own, and that included a touchdown, which was on some beautiful play design. My favorite call of the game was 100% the play action to Hayden Hurst for his touchdown on, I think, a third and short or even a fourth and short. I can't quite remember, but I just, if, if you know me, you know that my biggest pet peeve on offense is a team running the ball up the middle in short yardage situations. I think it makes the job easy for the defense. I think it simplifies everything way too much and makes it way too easy for them to stop you in a situation where they shouldn't. Heck, Minnesota ran the ball up the middle on fourth and goal, and the Falcons were all over it and made a goal line stand, which kept it a 10 to nothing game in the first quarter. When you do that, even if... If, if you're successful, the teams are usually barely successful, and then when you're not, it's a huge momentum shift the other way. So it's just not worth the risk, in my opinion. So seeing a great play-action pass, which 
I think they ran that same play in the first half against Dallas in week two. So, or week three. So I think they've seen that before. I mean, it was week two, actually. Correct myself there. But Daryl Johnston on the broadcast talked about showing your hand, showing something that you you want to save this for a timely point when you really need it. And I guess to argue against that, this team's ran that play before and it's worked. So I guess they'll be able to continue to run it maybe against everybody, except I don't think you can, you can run it against the divisional opponents just because of how heavily scouted those are. Those guys are. On the defensive side of the ball, what is there to improve on? The defense did make massive improvements in tackling. There were plenty of just perfect form tackles. A.J. Terrell, part of the reason I think he led the team in tackles, he made some great open field ones. On Justin Jefferson, on a variety of guys, I think his tackle for loss was a really great play. Showed the potential that he has in the run game, even as an undersized corner. I want to see Kendall Sheffield play better. He was actually, if anybody had a bad game, his wasn't, he didn't have a horrible game. But if there was a guy I wanted to, I was going to single out on the defense, I was Kendall Sheffield, gave up a couple of big plays to Justin Jefferson in the passing game and gave Minnesota a chance to grab momentum, but they weren't really able to. Besides that, not really much. You want to see a better game from Grady, but or Dante Fowler, but like I said, I think the Minnesota's offense really keyed in on those guys and it allowed guys like Alan Bailey and the the linebackers in general just played very well, especially with the interceptions by Foyer, Aluakon, and Debo. This was the best game that the linebackers have played all season long, and they were a big reason why the Falcons were able to come away with their first victory of the season. Now they head into week six, week seven, actually with a one and five record in a game that they have to win. Detroit themselves has blown a lot of leads at home and has a, it's a very similar look to the Falcons on paper. A solid offense with underrated receivers and Marvin Jones and Kenny Galladay. Matthew Stafford at quarterback. A guy that, yes, I know I'm a Georgia fan, but he's, I think, slept on underrated as well. And then a defense that gives up a lot of big plays and has been the root cause of them blowing a lot of second half leads. Blue one to... New Orleans blew one to um, who was it New Orleans and then Chicago in week one. That's who it was that I couldn't think of. So really had chance, had chances to win games and gave them away week one. It was Deandre Swift dropping a game winning touchdown. And then it was just conservative defense all around when they played New Orleans a couple weeks ago. It's a game. It's got a, It's a must win. If we, if the Falcons are gonna still try to be competitive this season, this is the epitome of a game that they have to win. Going into next week, I'm gonna do a 
full-on preview of that game later this week, along with a preview for Georgia's next game against Kentucky. It's going to be a lot more football-heavy coming up with how the start to the basketball is going to be delayed given the COVID ending of the NBA season and the fact that the SEC basketball schedule doesn't start till December. So I might do a free agency focused Atlanta Braves episode, but for now it's going to be very football heavy for those of you listening to this show. But thank you so much for listening. Go ahead and support the podcast by following the page on Instagram at hopeless sports Mantic on Twitter at Hopeless Sports Mantic, and on Facebook, which is a new Facebook page I had created just a couple of weeks ago called Hopeless Sports Mantic Podcast. So go ahead and give the Facebook page a like. You can support the podcast on Anchor. That would be greatly appreciated. Thanks again for listening, and chop on, rise up, and go dogs.